Elizabeth was supposed to be the scripture reader today, but she and Gus both came down with nasty colds last night. Ordinarily, this is the kind of thing where I would just hand it off to somebody else so that we could have other voices other than mine. Um, when you hear our Old Testament passage today, you will realize that handing, some, handing this to someone at the last minute would have been a very bad idea. Our Old Testament reading today comes from Genesis chapter 14. In the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Arioch, king of, king of Elisar, Ketolatimer, king of Elam, and Tadil, king of Golim, these kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admah, Shemabur, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. So all these joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that's the Salt Sea. Twelve years they had served Ketalamer, but on the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year, Ketalamer and the kings who were with him came and defeated the Rephaim at Asheroth Karnahim, the Zozim at Ham, the Emshim at Shavakir Amthaim, and the Horites in their hill country of Seir as far as El Panan on the border of the wilderness. Then they all came and turned back to En Mishpat, that is, Kadesh, and defeated all the country of the Amalekites and also the Amorites who were dwelling in Hazatamar. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, the king of Admar, the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, they all went out and they joined battle in the valley of Sidim with Ketalamer, king of Elam, Tadil, king of Golim, Amraphar, king of Shinar, and Arioch, king of Elisar, four kings against five. Now, the valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some of them fell into them, but the rest fell into the, fled into the hill country. So the enemy took possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their possessions and went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was living in Sodom and his possessions, and went their way. Then one who had escaped came and told Abram the Hebrew, who was living by the oaks of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol and Anir. These were allies of Abram. When Abram heard that his kinsmen had been taken captive, he sent forth his trained men, born of his house, 318 of them, and they all went in pursuit as far as Dan. And he divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and he defeated them and pushed them back to Hobah, north of Damascus. Then he brought back all of his possessions, and he also brought back his kinsman Lot with his possessions and his women and the people. After his return from the defeat of Ketalamer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram in the valley of Shaveh, which is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high. And he blessed him. And he said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. And then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And the king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the persons, but keep the goods for yourself. 
But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, that I would not take a thread or a sandal strap or anything that is yours. Otherwise, you could say, I have made Abram rich. I will take nothing but what the young men have eaten and the share of the men, and the share of the men who went with me. Let Anir, Eshkol, and Mamre take their share. This is the word of the Lord. Our psalm today is Psalm 110. We'll read responsively by whole verse. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments, from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. The New Testament lesson today is Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him, to show to his servants the things that must take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and was and is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by blood and made us a kingdom, priests to the, his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is the word of the Lord. Our gospel lesson today is taken from John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. Will you please stand for the reading of the gospel? This is the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. John. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, did you say this of your own accord, 
Or did others say this to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him, but you have a custom that I should release one man for you for the Passover. So, do you want me to release to you Jesus, King of the Jews? They cried out again, Not this man, but Barabbas. And Barabbas was a robber. This is the Gospel of the Lord. Please be seated. This is the Feast of Christ the King. It's the end of the Christian calendar year. It starts over again next week with Advent. We are continuing in our sermon series on Genesis. We're in Genesis 14 this week. And when I was planning out this sermon series, I didn't do this on purpose, but I realized that it just happily matched up that we would be in the passage on Melchizedek on Christ the King Sunday. So this worked out rather well. Uh, We are in Genesis 14. If you brought a Bible, turn to that page. Uh, If you didn't bring a Bible and you'd like to follow along with one, there are blue Bibles like this on the table in the back. And if you don't own a Bible, then one of these is our gift to you. So as I say, this is Christ the King Sunday. Uh, Christ the King Sunday is the newest of the feast days in the liturgical church. It's only as old as 1925. It has its roots in the patristic era, all the way back to Cyril of Alexandria in the the 300s. But the the feast day itself was was implemented by Pope Pius XI uh, in 1925 as a Roman Catholic feast day. And he did this both to, as a way of kind of capping the calendar year and, and having, it, having it sync up nicely with the, the end of our calendar year is celebrating the idea that Christ is king. And then next week we go into Advent when we are anticipating the birth of the king. But he also did it because he was concerned about increasing secularization within the church. And he was, in, he was concerned about increasing nationalization among nations. When you make something other than Jesus your king, it doesn't work out well. So, Genesis chapter 14. If while I was reading that, it was hard for you to follow, I think it's meant to be that way. Because the names themselves are confusing to our modern Western English-speaking ears, but I think it's actually more than that. Because, remember, when this was originally read out, when this was originally written, It was written to the children of Israel who had just finished wandering in the wilderness. And it was meant not to be written down and then read like a book. It was meant to be read out loud. So even if you replace some of the confusing Hebrew names that I read with with names or places that are more familiar to you, it would still be a lot, 
right? It would still be all of these guys versus all of these guys, and then they went here, and then they went there, and they went back again. So, I think what happened is basically, if you look at the whole text, four kings get together. Four kings go up against five kings. And the four kings win, and the five kings run away. And as they run away, a lot of them fall into big bitumen pits, or basically what are tar or asphalt pits that are all around the Dead Sea. And the four kings basically then get to take the spoils. And they also, as part of those spoils, because they were capturing the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom is where Lot had decided to live. So these four kings get to haul off Abram's nephew Lot as well. So that's where we are. It's a dizzying array of names. It's this battle of alliances and allegiances. And this is the first time that kings, as, a, as an office, as a thing, this is the first time that kings are ever mentioned in the Bible. I mean, back in, back in Genesis 10, it says that Nimrod, who was like the great-great-great-grandson of Noah, it says that his kingdom was in thus-and-so place in Mesopotamia. But the first time that anyone's referred to as king of blank, it's in this passage right here. And I think it's meant to sound confusing or disjointed. Because what do we know so far from Genesis? We know that mankind is made in the image of God, made to be his, his stewards, his under-shepherds, almost, almost like his, his kings. But man falls into sin. And so now, as a result of that, people are actually born sinful. And so what happens when, when kingly power meets human sin? Eventually, there's going to be fighting. There's going to be rebellion. There's going to be war. And through this story of war and, and fighting and falling into asphalt pits, we get Abram. And after the litany of kings and kingdoms, all these alliances and allegiances and people going against each other, we see an interesting picture of one more king. But this king is different. If you haven't read the whole Bible, you might not have picked up on it, but as I was reading through all of those names... The last one might have just seemed like another kind of confusingly named king from a weird place that you've never heard of. You have Amraphel, the king of Shinar, Arioch, the king of Elisar, Chedorlaomer, the king of Elam, Tidal, the king of Golim. You've got Sinab, the king of Adma, Shemebar, the king of Zeboim, and Melchizedek, the king of Salem. He's just another king from a weird place that you've never heard of and it's hard to pronounce. Except that he isn't. He isn't because there's no psalm that references Ketelamer, the king of Elam. There's no passage in the New Testament that does a deep dive into Sinab, the king of Adma. But this Melchizedek that we see, he's different. If you don't know Psalm 110, this might just be another strange name from a weird place that you skip over and forget about, like you're reading one of the genealogies or like you're reading Kings or Chronicles, and you're going, I, I don't know any of these people. But King David, hundreds of years after this happened, King David realized something that I think we're all supposed to realize, that this guy, Melchizedek, was different. Psalm 110, which we just read out loud, is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament. It starts off, The Lord, the Lord, says to my Lord, or think of it this way, 
Yahweh, the God of the universe, says to my master, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, or Jerusalem, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power. In holy garments from the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth shall be yours. The Lord, or Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Because in the midst of all these kings in Genesis 14, causing chaos, rebelling, making war, killing, hauling people off into slavery, comes another king. This is the guy who the psalmist decided was important enough to mention him in a psalm. And this is the guy who the writer to the Hebrews decides to devote an entire chapter to. Actually, almost two chapters. A big chunk of Hebrews 5 and all of Hebrews 7 are about this guy, Melchizedek, the king of Salem, a priest of God Most High. Now that would have made any Israelite's ears prick up when they heard that. This guy was a king of Salem and a priest of God Most High. What do you mean? What do you mean he's a, he's a priest of Yahweh? The I Am, the one who created everything. That, that, that's not how this works. Our Levites are the priests. How can this guy that we've never heard of, who's not an Israelite and who certainly isn't a Levite, how can this guy be a priest of Yahweh? He's not even a descendant of Abraham. So that's thing one to think about for this guy Melchizedek. This random king who comes out of nowhere from some other kingdom called Salem is somehow a priest of our God. How does that work? And then there's weird thing number two. The other kings in this passage take. They take because they're kings, because they make alliances, they make treaties, they make war, they fight and they pillage, they capture slaves, they took Lot and all of his possessions, and Abram can't even negotiate with them. These kings are not about diplomacy and relationships. Abram has to go fight them to get them back. So these other kings take, but what does Melchizedek do? Melchizedek gives. He comes out onto the field. He appears out of nowhere. He comes out bearing what? Gifts. He brings Abram gifts. He brings him bread and wine. And then he pronounces a blessing over him. Verse 19, he says, Blessed be Abram by God most high. This is a priestly function, pronouncing blessing on someone in the name of God. Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, And, blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. So these other kings take. They make war and they fight. This king, this weird king, gives. That's interesting thing number two. And how does Abram respond to this gift? With the other kings, what does he do? He fights because they fight. He fights because they took what was his and he's going to go get it back. But with this guy, he doesn't fight. He receives this blessing. He receives this feast. And then he gives back. He actually tithes. He treats Melchizedek like he is either his king or his God. Tithing is not just 
a Christian thing, and it's, and it's not even just an ancient Hebrew thing. This was actually a practice in the ancient Near East in many cultures. It's the way that you showed honor to your king, or it's the way that you showed honor to your deity. You gave 10% of whatever you have and whatever you make to the one that you're paying homage to. So how does Abram treat the other kings? He treats them like they're his enemies. How does Abram treat Melchizedek? He treats him like he's his lord. So what is all this driving toward? What am I trying to say here? Well, interesting thing number four, and the thing that wraps all this up, is if you know what Melchizedek's name means. So we see that this guy is named Melchizedek, the king of Salem. So in ancient Hebrew, um, Melech meant king. Zedekah means righteousness. So Melech is king, Zedekah is righteousness. Melech, Zedekah, put those together, you get Melchizedek, the righteous king or the king of righteousness. Salem is really Salem, which is from Shalom, which means peace or wholeness or fulfillment. So after a picture of what fallen worldly kings look like, we have a sudden appearance out of nowhere of the king of righteousness from the land of peace who brings bread and wine and who pronounces God's favor on his people. In, in theological writing, there's, there's something called the, the phenomenon of a theophany or a Christophany. Um, a theophany is just the appearance of God like when God appeared to Moses up on the top of Mount Sinai, or when, when God appeared to uh, Elijah in the still small voice in the cave. A theophany is the appearance of God. A Christophany is the specific appearance of God the Son. And I don't mean Jesus, like Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth was born in a very specific place and time. But God the Son has always been and will always will be, and, and there's actually in theological writers, there's a good case to be made that this Melchizedek, like a couple other things in the Old Testament, is actually a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son. And a lot of people say that this will be a pre-appearance, that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son, and a lot of people say that it won't. But what we do know is that Abraham is greeted by the King of Righteousness from the land of peace, from a place called Salem, which later went on to be known as Jeru-Salem, or Jerusalem, where the temple to God was built, where the Holy of Holies, the, the thickest dwelling place of Yahweh was built. Jerusalem, where, where Jesus was captured, where he was tried by Pilate, which we just heard, convicted, crucified, and buried, and then raised from the dead. Jerusalem, where the church began. That's where Melchizedek is from. So, is this passage in Genesis 14 supposed to be some kind of pre-incarnate appearance of God the Son before he became the God-man Jesus? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I tend to think so. I don't know that it matters all that much. But what I do know is that this is clearly pointing to the great king. This is clearly what they call a type or a shadow. It's like a, a foreshadowing. It's a foretaste of what Jesus will be. If you're reading the Bible straight through from beginning to end, this would be this little nugget right here at Genesis 14, which is like all of six pages into the Bible. 
That won't get mentioned ever again until the dead middle of the Bible in Psalm 110. But then by the time we get about 80% of the way through the Bible in the New Testament, it gets mentioned over and over again. It gets two entire chapters in the book of Hebrews. Not to give a history lesson to who this guy was or who he might have been, but to show more of Christ, to give yet another dimension to explain who Jesus is, to show how someone can both be our priest and our king. That could not happen in the Israelite system of Jewish law. That's why the first time that, that, that the Israelites would have heard this, they would have, it, it would have sounded strange to their ear that this priest was also a king. Because it couldn't happen. I mean, it was literally against the law. You could not be a priest if you were a king. Kings in, in ancient Israel got disciplined by the prophets and the priests when they tried to take on the role of a priest. The priest had to be a Levite from the tribe of Levi. And Jesus wasn't of the tribe of Levi either. He was from the tribe of Judah. So how is it, this was a common argument from the, the first century Hebrews, how is it that we can say that Jesus is both our king and our priest? The reason we can do that is because of this guy right here in Genesis 14, because of Melchizedek. Because we can see that, that this man, this king of righteousness from the land of peace, that God apparently tells some men that they get to be, both be priest and king. And so we see in Hebrews that Jesus is a priest forever in the tradition of Melchizedek. So, do you have to understand this little story in Genesis 14, this weird battle between four regional kings and five regional kings and falling into tar pits, and then this strange appearance by Melchizedek, the king of righteousness? Do you have to fully get that? in order to have faith in Christ and be part of his kingdom? No. But when you do start to understand it, when you start to read the Bible as telling one big story, it gives another dimension or another perspective, just a, a deeper appreciation of how all God's story to his people ties together and how it all points to Jesus. It gives us another dimension to appreciate the work of Christ. Because when, when we talk about Jesus... One of the ways that we talk about him is as our great high priest. We say it um, sometimes during our liturgy. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace because Jesus, as our high priest, does the exact same thing that the priest did for the Israelites. He constantly makes intercession to God on our behalf. But instead of acting like the Old Testament priests who who sacrificed oxen and lambs and goats to atone for the sins of the Israelites, our great high priest doesn't need to make new sacrifices because all he does is constantly point back to his own blood. He constantly points back to his own sacrifice as the full payment for our sins. And so in that way, Jesus is very much our great high priest. But Jesus is also our king. And he's not just our king if you believe in him. Like, whether you believe in him or not, he is still the king. The president doesn't need, to me, doesn't need me to believe that he's president in order to be president. And even more so, Jesus does not need me to, be, to believe that he is the king in order for him to be the king. He's the king of the whole universe. He said it right after his, right after his resurrection at the end of Matthew 28. He says, all authority 
in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is enthroned today, and his kingdom can never end. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the one who was and is and is to come. And our king, and this is what I think we can see from Genesis 14, what we can learn, what we can really get into our bones and how we can, how we can praise God for this. Our king is not like earthly kings. Earthly kings do earthly things. Some are better than others, but all of them must at some point do bad things. They all must sin because they're human. All earthly kings will sin because all earthly kings must sin because all earthly kings are human. But our king of righteousness from the land of peace is a perfect king. So keep Abram in mind. Remember Abram in the midst of a a strange land with shifting alliances, with competing factions. Abram in a strange land in the midst of this chaos and war and fighting. Abram is greeted by the king of righteousness from the land of peace. And instead of preparing Abram for more war, and instead of arming him, what does he do? He feeds him. He brings a feast to Abram. And he blesses him in the name of God. And then Abram continues on his journey, refreshed and blessed and equipped. Jesus is our king. Jesus is our king, and that sounds stranger today to say out loud in America than it did when I was a kid in the same country. Jesus is our king, and that's, that's getting to the point. We're not there yet, but it's getting to the point where that's going to sound as strange to say out loud today as it would have been to the first century Christians. The phrase Jesus is Lord or, or Jesus Kurios or Christos Kurios, uh, Christ is Lord. This was a common phrase among the first century Christians. And they would say it with joy and they would say it with reverence because it was the truth. But they would also say it with fearlessness and they better have been fear, fearless because to say that out loud was treasonous. To say Jesus Kurios meant that you weren't saying Kaiser Kurios. You weren't saying the, the token phrase of the day, the greeting that people would give to one another. Hey, how are you? Caesar is Lord. I'm good. How are you? Caesar is Lord. Kaiser Kurios. And the first century Christians were so convinced by the, the ruling and reigning and deity of their king that they unashamedly would say out loud, Jesus Kurios. Jesus is our Savior and our Lord. He is our great high priest and he is our king. He is all of those things. It's great to think of him as our savior because each and every one of us needs one. And the older you get, the more you realize just how much you need one. He is our atoning sacrifice. And he's our priest who mediates that sacrifice to the Father. But he is also our Lord. He is the king. This is his kingdom, and we are on his land. And the great news is that unlike the other kings that we see around us, and unlike the other kings that we see in Genesis 14, he is a good king. He is 
the true King of righteousness from the land of peace. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that Jesus is King. We thank you that he is our Savior. We thank you that, that you made a way for us to come back to you. But we also thank you that he is our King, that this world has, that this world has a governing authority, that there is order and purpose to the things that happen, even if from this perspective, from down here, we sure can't see it sometimes. We thank you that Christ is ruling and reigning today and that his kingdom cannot end because he cannot end. We thank you for his church, Lord, that he has said that he himself has started and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And we thank you as we look forward in anticipation to that day when we will get to see our king face to face. We pray all this in his name. Amen.